Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. A. Van Vogt, born April 26, 1912, died January 28, 2000, at the age of 87, was a science fiction writer who had his heyday from the mid-1940s through the 1960s, with such novels as The Weapon Shops of Isher, Slan, The Voyage of the Space Beagle, and The World of Null A. Named a science fiction grandmaster in 1995, Van Vogt started by writing for Astounding Stories under editor John W. Campbell in the early 1940s. Slan was published in 1940, and most of those novellas and serialized novels found their way into hardback and paperback years later as fix-ups, reworked material, often with new titles. In 1950, he came under the spell, as did Campbell, of L. Ron Hubbard and Dianetics, and later wrote through the lens of general semantics founded by Alfred Korzybski. In 1980, with the publication of a new novel, Cosmic Encounter, and a lawsuit against 20th Century Fox over the film Alien, parts of which were derived from his story Discord and Scarlet in the book Voyage of the Space Beagle, Van Vogt was available to be interviewed on February 23, 1980, by my former co-hosts on the radio show Probabilities on KPFA, the late Lawrence Davidson, science fiction book buyer for the legendary Cody's Bookstore in Berkeley, and science fiction author Richard A. Lupoff. How did you become a writer, and specifically a science fiction writer? The uh, business of writing was very easy during the Depression. That's when I was in my late teens and early 20s. At that time, there was nothing else to do. You couldn't get a job, you couldn't do anything, you couldn't, you know, there was no way of earning any money. And so I was a writer at home. Although I was the only one. I don't know why the other people who didn't have jobs didn't do that. But I must, I, I must say that it seemed so natural for me to, to spend my spare time in trying to write. And I used to try to write stories for Liberty Magazine. They had these one-page short, short stories. Uh, they all failed, by the way. I never could write a short, short story. My father was an attorney. Uh, we lived for a while in the town of Morden, Manitoba when I was in my teens. And I really started to try to write a little bit there, but for the most part, when we moved to Winnipeg, which is a large city, at least it seemed large at the time, but at that time it had a population of about 250,000, which was a fairly big city for Canada. There I really made the effort because I had no friends. I came to a new area. I was reading two books a day and trying to write on the side. No science fiction. I, f- I found a copy of uh, of Amazing Stories, the November twenty sixth issue, when I was fourteen, and that's how I got started reading. I found it in a in a drugstore. You know, there it was for sale, twenty five cents. 
I immediately paid over my only piece, 25 cent piece, and I was launched. Not too long afterwards, Amazing became a, a very poor magazine, however, because it was taken over by that strange second editor. Hugo Gunsback lost control of it. And this second editor had, um, had no awareness of what science fiction was. He merely edited the magazine. Uh, with a shake of his head, he says, of course, we'll never get out into space, he said. That was you Dr. Know. Sloan. Dr. Sloan. What he was doing editing a science fiction magazine is beyond me. He had no business in the... He bought stories that were worthless, seemed like to me, but I stopped reading, in spite of my enormous interest in those early 26 and 27 issues. Were there any specific writers that you found more enjoyable from those earlier issues? Somewhere in there, E.E. E. Smith wrote the first novel that I read of his, The Skylark of Space, and, I, and he really launched us into outer space, and me too. I was still reading uh, Amazing at 28, but in 29, I don't think I was. I was right there. T 29 was when Gernsback Suddenly, departed. Suddenly, there was nothing in the magazine that was of interest, and I didn't pick up another issue until 1939. And then I finally picked up a copy of Astounding Science Fiction, and I read in it, standing at a drugstore uh, you know, magazine stand, and I read the first half of Who Goes There by Don A. Stewart. And at that time, I decided I would buy this magazine and finish the story. <laughs> it, that, it was 20 cents, by the way. That's how much it was. It was worth the price. It was worth the price. <laughs> I, sure on was. the basis of reading that story, I sent Campbell an idea for a story without knowing who he was and that he was the real author of the story. That was a pseudonym that he wrote under Don A. Stewart. And that was uh, Black Destroyer? No, that was not Black Destroyer. It was Vault of the Beast. For some reason, he didn't publish that right away. He published Black Destroyer first. That in Black Destroyer was uh, really the uh, launching point of your career? Yes, it really was, because it was just as well that it happened. The University of Chicago is going to put out a hardcover version of the July 1939 issue of Astounding Science Fiction in which Black Destroyer is the lead novelette or the lead story and has the cover. You can see how far we have come. The University of Chicago. That story was also the beginning of what eventually became Voyage of the Space Beagle. That is correct, right. Mission Interplanetary in some editions. Correct, which is, by the way, my most successful book in other parts of the world. It's even behind the Iron Curtain. It has been published. Here in the U.S., I have several other books that are that have done better than The Voyage of the Space Beagle, although not much, you know. I mean, it's, it's right up there. It seems to be a type of story, you know, with its alien characters and so on that has a strong appeal. That kind of jumps us to another topic that I was hoping to get to much later. But since you mentioned alien characters, let me take over the interview for a few minutes and autobiographize on me just for a minute. When I was okay. about 16 years old, I picked up a little signet paperback called Mission Interplanetary by A.E. Van Vogt, whom I had never heard of. And I read this book, and uh, I just loved it. it. It thrilled me, and it excited me, and it scared me. And it produced the proverbial sense of wonder. It did all of the grand things that first-class space adventure science fiction is supposed to do. That was uh, around 1951, I guess. Almost 20 years later, I went to see a movie called Alien. I thought it was a splendid movie, a first-class production. I enjoyed it very much. But something kept nagging away at my 
mind all during the movie. And as soon as it was over, things fell into place. I said to myself, number one, I know that story. The production is new, but I, I know that story. Number two, I know what story it is. It's Voyage of the Space Beagle, or incidents from Voyage of the Space Beagle. And yet there had been, none of the screen credits said anything about A.E. Van Vogt. So I got very, very distressed, and in fact, telephoned Fari Ackerman, who's an old friend of mine and who is your agent, I know, and discussed it with him, and he had a few things to say about it, uh, which we needn't go in, into now, because what, what I wanted to do is get your statement about that whole topic. Well, believe it or not, I saw Alien at 20th Century Fox Studios, as, a, as a, since I'm a member of the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. And we were all invited to, or at least a number of us were invited to go there to see the picture. And when I came out of the theater part, several persons said to me, well, there goes the voids of the Space Beagle. And I said, yes, I've already spoken to my agent about it, and I, and I will have him write 20th to tell them that the main storyline is my story, Discord in Scarlet, from the Voids of the Space Beagle. And that I'm going to suggest to them, which is what we have done, and which is what's most likely going to happen, although there were some intermediate things, because 20th Century Fox has been falling apart, as you know, administrative-wise. There's never anybody to talk to. There's always an old guy leaving and a new guy coming in, and they have to be brought up to date. So there's been some delays in this whole matter beyond anybody's power to do anything about. But when Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek discovered that one of the writers uh, had written a story very close to a Frederick Brown story, it was brought to his attention. He immediately contacted the Brown family. I don't know whether Fred was alive at that time still or not, and bought the story from them. I suggested to 20th that they do the same thing with Discord and Scarlet for for one use, you know. I said, if you, if there's an Alien 2 and similar types of you know things, then further. But I've talked to their principal attorney, and he said, I'll have a final offer for you when you get back from Canada, which I told him I was going back, and I'll have a final offer for you for the story at that time. We'll take the money and let the credit go, because I have enough credit in other ways. The truth of the matter is, to get to get credits onto all those films that are out is an awfully difficult process. It's not easy to do. You have to face technical realities of that kind. You know, get them all back in, put the credit on, and that kind of thing. It's a nuisance. It really is. One of the original criticisms of the movie Alien was that it was very, very similar to the movie It, The Terror from Beyond Space. The scriptwriter to that movie was Jerome Bixby, who I understand that you were friends with. I haven't seen Jerome or Jerry for, you know, let's say since It. I never saw It myself. You know, I mean, I, I, was, I don't know what I was busy with at the time. I never saw it, and I didn't know anything about it until some years later when it was no longer around. Could I read you a little one-line summary of It from this film reference guide we've got here? Okay. They describe it as... Uh, a blood-drinking Martian stows away on a spaceship returning from Mars to Earth. 
the thing about Alien, I mean, and 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 Discord and Scarlet is is the business of laying eggs inside yes. of the individual, and then the the chase through the air conditioning system and so on. That's exactly what occurred yes. in Discord and Scarlet. The creature comes aboard a little differently, but they have him come aboard on a twelve hundred a mile in diameter planet, you know, or so maybe even smaller than that. I can't remember the size of the planet, which has an atmosphere. And I said, I, I question whether a planet of 1,200 miles in diameter could hold an atmosphere. In the very area where they were trying to be different, they were already making mistakes. What I said to 20th Century Fox was this. I said, now, in my opinion, Star Trek is also, the whole of the Star Trek series is also based upon my novel, The Voyage of the Space Beetle. In fact, Gene Roddenberry, in, in a kind of a way, admitted it to me. I mean, the only thing is, not a single story line that I, that I ever saw paralleled any story of mine. Now, I said, I cannot take possession of space and of voyages in space. So I looked that over. And I thought that's perfectly okay for him to do that, so long as they don't use a story idea of mine. I twice wrote outlines for Star Trek, but some character in New York turned them down. Maybe we should get back then to 1939 in Winnipeg. In your uh, Reflections book, you you mentioned that you had been a confessions magazine writer and a uh, a radio writer before you got into science fiction. That's right. Care to say a little about that? I read two books on writing. One of them called The Only Two Ways to Write a Short Story by a fellow called John Goloshaw, and the other one, Narrative Technique by Thomas Uzell. And those two were my Bibles as to how to write a story. He breaks down 20 stories uh, written in the Saturday Evening Post, Colliers, of uh, Cosmopolitan of that period of time by famous writers of the period. And he found their their cycles, you know, and so on. Then he found the 800-word scene in there automatically. Not that It was there by the intuition of the writer. You know, he was writing without ever knowing that this was what... It required that from his feeling as to how to present the story, you see. Now, I had to learn it by system. At that time, during the Depression, the, the McFadden publications, publishers of True Story magazine and other tr uh, true romances and various things like that, uh, had huge contests. At least they seemed huge at the time. You know, they offered, they offered prizes of five thousand dollars first prize and so on, for the best true story and so on. So I wrote a number of stories for these people. I, I don't really know how many anymore, but it was quite a few, and I won one of their first prizes, with a story that I called, "My Mother Ran on Our Family." and they called The Miracle in My Life. In writing confession stories, I, I observed this in them, that every sentence has an emotion in it. Every sentence. You, can, you never say in a, in, a, in a confession story, I lived at 323 Brand Street. See, that's a dead sentence emotional-wise. You say, tears came to my eyes as I thought of my little room at 323 Brand Street. <laughs> I wrote a whole batch of those stories, and then one day I was in the middle of one, and I thought, what am I doing this for? Also, I wrote a large number of radio plays for $10 a piece for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, some shows that they had. You know, write 50 of those, and you get $500, and after a while it sinks in that this is not the way to make a living. Yes, By the way, in, in Winnipeg, at the time it didn't occur to me, but I was probably the only writer in Winnipeg who was making a living. 
what amazes me now, after I read Fred Pohl's uh, The Way the Future Was, you know, that a story could arrive from far away Winnipeg and find a place in a New York publisher's magazine. Uh, I couldn't have found it in any one of the other magazines because they were all being run by in-groups. The writers were all starving to death, and, and uh, they would bring their story to the editor, and only those who were a member of his in-group would be, would be acceptable. So that a story of mine, like, like Black Destroyer arriving on the desk of such an editor, would not get anywhere at all, which brings us to John W. Campbell, Jr., who bought from anyone that wrote a story. At the time that I read Who Goes There, I wrote Campbell a one-paragraph outline of Vault of the Beast. I really didn't know how it was going to go or anything like that. He said, be sure to write, put plenty of atmosphere into it. I knew what he meant. That story of mine left Winnipeg, Canada, as remote an outlying area from New York as you can get, I would say, on this continent at that time. Arrived there on the desk of John W. Campbell, and he read it. You know, he didn't just read the letter and say, oh, it's from Winnipeg, Canada, send it back, you know. I imagine that in-group people could wait forever in Campbell's office and, and not get a check immediately. So I was really astonished, you know, that I could have been successful at all from far away Winnipeg. When World War II began, I uh, went to uh, Ottawa. I took a job that paid $81 a month, and my apartment was $75 a month. Because of the wartime, there were very few apartments available. I just took it right away because I figured I could make a living on the side support this job. And I did so until they began to take away my spare time. There was a period finally in early 41, this, you know, the war started in Canada much sooner than here. 39 when, when the British Empire went to war, so did Canada. And so it, from November 39 until April 41, before the U.S. even got into the war, I was in the Department of National Defense there, paying my way. <laughs> then they began to take away my spare time. First, finally, I was working four evenings a week, all day Saturday, and every other Sunday, and I knew I was doomed. So I resigned one month before they froze everybody into their job. Uh, only now do I realize what a good mental, physical state I was in to be able to do that all at all. You know, I mean, to come home and write a, one of those 800-word scenes and then go to bed. The next day, Maine would type the scene, and I would go over it in the evening. And, and while she was typing those scenes, she began to get ideas of her own. That was really very good for her. You mentioned Maine. That was E. Maine Hull. That's right. When her first story was published under the name of E. M. Hull, and somebody wrote into Campbell and said, Is this the author of The Sheik? That's a much earlier writer. Oh, Campbell said, he said, Does she have a middle name? You have had just innumerable publishers and editors over the years. Right. I'll just say this about Campbell. I'm, I only met him twice. And I went, when I went to New York in 53, I had written him in advance. He took me out to his home in uh, New Jersey. And from the time that he picked me up at the bus to the time that, uh, the, that Dr. J.A. Winter and his wife came to dinner, I don't think I got in a word edgewise. <laughs> he was so loaded with ideas and he was talking away, you know, like just a, a monologue, a regular monologue. At lunchtime, his wife, Peg, uh, called us for lunch. I mean, his second wife. This was not the Dona. His first wife was called Dona Stewart, from which he derived his name Don A. Stewart, his, his, his pseudonym Don A. Stewart. They got divorced for reasons which I don't know, but which I could analyze if I were so inclined. I think it had to do with Dianetic. He was off constantly 
at the beginning of Dianetics with Hubbard. Never was at home for that. But I even wrote him a letter when he reported this to me, saying, you watch out. I said, wives don't go for that kind of thing. The ever-absent husband. And sure enough, uh, suddenly there they were divorced, and uh, he marries the sister of uh, Dr. J.A. Winter, who wrote the foreword to the first dietetic book. Anyway, I discovered that she could control John Campbell in terms of their, of their conversation because her, her mind was just as quick as his. And between the two of them at lunch, I never got in a word edgewise. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it must have been worth listening. Oh, yes. I sat there. Uh, you know, I made a few attempts. You know, one always does. And then uh, finally, you just uh, give up. Uh, let, let me ask you to, um, to fantasize a little bit about a parallel world that doesn't exist. Okay. Now, according to H.L. Gold, when Tremaine was about to step out as editor of Astounding, this would be 1937, Gold was possibly up for the job. Gold maintains that Street and Smith being an old line wasp firm, uh, although they didn't mind buying his stories, didn't want to hire him because he's Jewish. And uh, now I, I don't know of any documentation to support this, but Horace Gold has suggested that this may have been the reason that he was passed over and Campbell was hired instead. The parallel world I'm going to ask you to to, to concoct for me, if you will, is what would Campbell have written if instead of becoming an editor in 1937, he had remained a writer and had continued writing for the next 34 years up to his death? Don't forget that he gave ideas to writers. So in a way, he passed them out freely. He sent me many ideas. And I said, well, it always takes about three years for an idea of yours to reach the writing stage, John, uh, you know, I mean, when I wrote him, in a way he didn't offer me too many ideas because it just took too long, you know, that kind of thing. But but I understand from Isaac and from, but now see there, Isaac was one of, at one time, at least one of uh, Campbell's best uh, writers and uh, found no problem there so far as his being Jewish is concerned. But the point is that, that uh, Campbell himself bought from anybody. He bought even from a person in, writing from Winnipeg, you know. I mean, so it, it, he bought a story for its own sake, which is what I'm trying. Which is the only comment I'm making about Campbell. Sure. Now I have many letters from Campbell. He wrote long letters, you know. I mean, he would sit down, and apparently there were no copies made until 1951 of his correspondence. The one thing you notice about them is that they're essentially single space. And they run two, three, four, five, and six pages. Now, receiving a letter from Campbell, in other words, is an event because you have to take time off from earning a living in order to read it. I wouldn't necessarily read that letter right away because at one cent a word, you don't have time to read a six-page, single-space letter. But I would eventually get to it and uh, eventually answer. The next time I met Campbell was at, at a science fiction convention in San Francisco. And we only talked briefly at that time. By the way, he predicted the invasion of uh, D-Day. He was wrong only within two weeks. He thought it would be two weeks earlier than it was. He wrote this letter to me across the border, and nobody stopped it. <laughs> in one letter he wrote me, he described an experiment that he had seen on, in, in the atomic energy situation. And he wrote that to me, and that came through across the line from him, from an editor, you see. Of course, Campbell was ahead of all the others in the U.S. in that 
1938 issue of Astounding. He said, this is it. Mark my words, ladies and gentlemen, he said in Astounding, this is the solution to the secret of atomic energy. That's really pointing at the thing, and it turned out that it was. But that's my experience with John W. Now, the others were merely business approaches, except for the editors who would send me material, you know, like like when, when The World of Nolle was was uh, published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, I have a feeling the editor at that time was a, an English major uh, who found the general semantics ideas on, on the, the English language a little outrageous. So he sent me 20 pages of changes, which consisted of changing general semantic ways of saying things into traditional English, which I did because it was the first science fiction book published by Simon & Schuster after World War II. I must say, I found that Cosmic Encounter, it's based on uh, one of the most intriguing premises. Spaceship from the remote future would somehow hit some sort of space-time warp and splash down in the Caribbean Sea in the 18th century and fished out by pirates. It's a marvelous, dazzling concept, and I'd love you to talk about it a little bit. Well, you see, Maine was fascinated by Queen Anne. I mean, she uh, she regarded Queen Anne as the best of the English queens because Anne, uh, you know, at the time when British armies were fighting for the Spanish succession in Europe, you know, her, the country had been at war when she came to the throne and it was at war and it was at war and so on and all these mad wars. And one day she just called all the British armies back from the from the mainland Europe and said, no, I don't want any more wars in my now, that's a fantastic action, and it completely horrified all the macho males who were running England at that time. So it seemed to me like, and I heard a lot of this over the breakfast table, you know, about Queen Anne and so on. So I really, of course, when I finally started to write the story about this whole period, I had to do a lot of looking up of the books that were there on the shelves. But the thing about that story and my general picture... Somewhere in every story, I sort of let my subconscious run wild with the hope that embedded in my molecules, brain molecules, is a history of the universe, <laughs> history of life, and that some of this will come through. And, of course, it was Jung's idea of mental images from the ancient past that, uh, that brought this to my mind, that they were there, if only they could come forth, you know, and so on. Now, obviously, you and I are sit sitting here have a direct line to the most ancient life on this planet. Every every molecule and, and cell division that took place uh, had to occur or we wouldn't be here. In other words, we are, it goes back and back and back and back and back and back without without a break or we wouldn't be here. And that would, that goes, and that would go to the earlier uh, non-life stage too in terms of this. So somewhere in this system of mine uh, when when Jung said that so I thought well maybe it'll come out. So toward the end of a story I really sometimes get a little carried away in, that, in letting the, because I try to dream about it I try to get dreams and so on that will bring forth some kind of a basic thought and I never did get any thoughts about the Big Bang uh, during that, so all those years, you know, what what could have started at that time? So I have the beginning of that in Cosmic Encounter, and I was explaining this idea to a professor of surgical medicine from the University of North Carolina that I met a number of years ago at a luncheon. He was in Hollywood. And he said, 
you know, I, I had the thought, which is not in Cosmic Encounter, but it, the beginning of it, the idea is there, the, that with the coming of the universe, uh, a thought configuration ended with the Big Bang. And he said, why not a goal-seeking thought configuration? I thought, boy, that is a marvelous thought. When that goal-seeking thought configuration in my uh, novelized version of, of my screenplay, Computer World, uh, comes to to its goal, the special effects department had better be good. The uh, idea of, of the universe starting with a goal-seeking thought configuration is near the end of this thing. And we see the original title of Cosmic Encounter was The Universe Ended 1704 A.D. That was a little too much for Doubleday, I guess, because they they came up with a... Why not the cosmic connection, they said. Well, I wrote back, there's already a title like that. So my agent, Horst Ackerman, says, this was just a time of the close encounters of the third kind. He says, why not the cosmic encounter? The thing is that that this problem, you know, the universe collapsing from all directions, from both the past and the future, into 1704 A.D., the Queen Anne time, and we meet Queen Anne and, you know, all that kind of thing, kind of fascinated me. And at the end, I really again have this have this kind of a subconscious free floating endings thing with the hope that one of these days I'm going to read all my stories and find out what I said see if it makes any sense in terms of the origin of the universe uh, are you getting any responses yet to this book, or is it too soon? It's just out. Right? No, I know I have got no responses on it except that I read a a review by Algis Budris or Budris who uh, doesn't particularly like my stuff. He, what he said was something like this, that, that I was one of the famous writers of the 40s whose reputation had been, had been seriously diminished in the early 50s by some critis, critics, and, but that this book showed, showed all my old magic to some extent. The only person who diminished my, uh, my reputation in the 50s was Damon Knight, who uh, has... Uh, Several times recently, written me and asked me for a story, you know, for an anthology, including that he's there's a new edition of something coming out that he would like to have a. He wrote me and asked me if I, he could have a, a little introduction to it. So uh, Damon seems to have calmed down also. Yes, yes, and uh, but but one of the things that that uh, Damon took exception to, I find uh, he's I I consider him at fault. Now I'm although I changed my. I finally decided, well, maybe I'm wrong. But the fact is, I used to write the, used to write my stories with the idea that certain sounds in the English language, in the language, by themselves created an emotion. If you persisted with that sound, but not to the level of it, of alliteration, for example, to me, the K sound is a battle sound. In a battle scene, after I wrote the first version of it which I also tried to aim in the direction of K-words, I would go over the paragraph looking for substitute words that would have the K sound in them so that that effect of the K sound would be in there. And I had similar things for the liquid sounds like L, M, and N, for, the, for R, for, for T and D. I had similar ideas. And the only thing is after I stopped doing it, it never crossed my mind. In those days I had a perfect memory, it seemed like that it would ever fade away from me. Now I can't remember exactly what I had in mind for some, what emotion I had in mind for some of those sounds. The point is that writing a story that carefully, 
And then finding that my use of the English language is being questioned <laughs> really disturbed me a little bit at the time, and I finally thought, well, maybe I was wrong. Since you mentioned Damon, would you clarify one thing for me? Now, he was the founder of SFWA, Science right. Fiction Writers of right. America. Now, there was something going on at the same time that you and he were working in parallel and independent of one another, and some confusion as to... Just what were the events of those, which would have been about 1964, I believe? Yes, I sure can, because what I found in Hollywood, I saw that certain stories were being stolen at that time. They weren't mine. I just noticed it. So I wrote a letter to as many science fiction writers as I could locate, and I said, why don't we form the Science Fiction Writers Protective Association? I got quite a few answers to that, and as a matter of fact, Variety interviewed me on it, and... Uh, I told them what the problem was and that we did have to protect ourselves because of the of the habit of screenplay writers of paralleling stories already in existence. I didn't know that mine was being paralleled by it at that time. At that point, Damon, who had had the idea of the science fiction writers of America, you know, and of course he was in the New York area, where the, which, which is the area of power, he hadn't done it, but my doing this decided him that it was time to do this job, that it was time to organize this or, this organization. And he had a he had far more contact with other writers than I did. And as soon as I discovered what he was doing, I wrote him and I said, uh, why don't I send you the names and addresses of all the writers who have signed up for Science Fiction Writers Protective Association, and we don't have any duplication here. By, by that time, by the way, I had discovered how much time it took to <laughs> to organize a science fiction writers protective association and that was the way to starvation i thought he better do it <laughs> so 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 it was not a question of, of no 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 the moment that i discovered what he was doing and i i recognized immediately that he had far more contacts than i ever i joined up myself immediately and sent him all the names and addresses and and by the way wrote them all a letter recommending science fiction writers of america to them but anyway in in um, in, in my writing, I had all these systems. You know, in other words, I'm a, I, I always had the feeling that I was born a square, you see, that, that uh, therefore I had to work by systems to break through into the subconscious mind, which, which is the key to non-squareness. You know, the people who are intuitive have a better contact with the subconscious mind than the person who, who is sort of rigid. Obviously, everybody is associating constantly between the subconscious and the conscious, but not in the same sensitive way as the intuitive writer or the who can make you know who can do it or the intuitive artist. So uh, I had to find systems. I had these various systems, and my system for finding ideas for myself was by waking myself up every hour and a half at night uh, and thinking about a story and then going to sleep again, uh, you know, and so on, and using the dream method to do that. That I did that for years and years and years, like 300 nights a year, approximately. There were reasons why other nights it couldn't be done. I used an alarm clock. Every hour and a half, that alarm clock would go off, and it always seemed like as if it was right away. You know, I mean, fortunately, I'm a person who sleeps easily, and even as I'm thinking about a story idea as to how can we, how can I work that out, I find that the alarm is going off. You know, for the next hour and a half. But if you do that, you know, do that over and over and over again, in the morning, about 10 o'clock, hey, a solution. The subconscious mind 
has found a solution to that. And it's an original one. It's not one that comes readily to mind. In other words, it's true that those were some, some there were some awfully strange ideas in my stories, but they came in this fashion. When the alarm would go off, did you jot down notes in your thoughts or anything? Only or if it were a sinister scene. You know, if I actually had a memory of a dream. Most of the time I didn't remember the dream or anything like that. You know, dreams are hard to remember. Yes, they are. And uh, if, if it was a sinister dream, then yes, I would sit up, turn on the light, and write it down. The sinister dream goes something like this. When Harlan Ellison asked me to write uh, a story for him in Partners in Wonder, you know, with him in Partners yeah. in Wonder, in which 14 writers, I think, eventually wrote a story with Harlan Ellison, I said to him, Harlan, give me a title. He said, I've got one for you. He said, when I was at the St. Louis Convention, and we were standing near the elevators, uh, somebody said, some of the elevators have human operators. He said, I wrote that down, the human operators. He said, that's your title, the human operators. I said, it's a wonderful title. So that night, uh, when I, by this time I have had an industrial timer to awaken me through a tape recorder. You know, we get a little richer as we get a little yeah. older. And... Uh, so it awakened me and awakened me, and about the fourth night, I had this sinister dream, which was the scene on this spaceship. There's a, uh, what the story is about is that sometime in the far future, uh, a series of 100 super spaceships escaped, you know, from their human builders. They they were they were computerized a little too well, shall we say. They uh, they all escaped and escaped into space, but they needed somebody to maintain them. They needed a maintenance person, the human operator. And this human operator, every periodically, the ships would get together with a female human operator and a male human operator and breed them for the next generation. You see. <laughs> And uh, I left the breeding seeds to Harlan. I said, Harlan, you seem to understand more about that acquaintance than what I hear. He wrote them well. The Book of the Month Club has selected as an alternate a collection by uh, Robert Silverberg and Martin oh, Harry yes, Greenberg. Yes, yes. And the story of uh, mine and Harlan's that's in there is The Human Operators. Oh. It has a long life to it, apparently, this particular story. But see, that's where it came from. His title, My Dream... My waking myself up, that's how I penetrate my, you know, how a square gets into a subconscious, through the dream process. Was it Rod Serling who produced uh, Since Aunt Ida Came to Stay? Right, right. How did that come about? Did you have any contact with him about that? Well, I'll tell you, I met Rod Serling a number of times, and I think he was always looking for a story of mine that might be useful to him. So suddenly, before he got a call from, before he did, I mean, he got a call from... Uh, from Universal Pictures, saying that Rod Sterling wanted The Witch, which was the original story in connection with that. Evidently, he had finally read it and decided that he could utilize it. So I met him a number of times. He was very kindly disposed toward me for some reason or other. And so if I had been able to suggest anything to him at any time, it never, The Witch never crossed my mind. On those occasions that I met him, which weren't too often, but uh, he was he seemed to be very friendly, ex unusually friendly and 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 so on, and uh, as I say, suddenly I got this offer for The Witch from Universal on the basis of his request. Abe Van Vogt continued to write after the interview with three more novels, Computer World, based on the screenplay mentioned in the interview, Nullet Three, and To Conquer Kyber, translated into a French edition and never published in English. Abe Van Vogt settled with 20th Century Fox, 
and according to Wikipedia, received $50,000, but no credit for Alien. It, the terror from beyond space, is often credited as Dan O'Bannon's inspiration for Alien. His collaboration with Harlan Ellison, The Human Operators, was adapted for the 2002 revival of the TV series The Outer Limits, and the previously mentioned Rod Serling adaptation of The Witch aired in 1971 on Night Gallery. Most of his novels and short stories can be found as e-books through Amazon and other booksellers, along with used paperbacks and hardcovers. This interview was digitized, remastered, and re-edited from two and a half hours of material by Richard Walensky in December 2019. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>